This is Football Social Daily. Ratcliffe ratified. The deal to take over 25% of Manchester United was officially rubber-stamped today. But is this a Valentine's Day romance for the ages at Old Trafford? Ratcliffe not quite Mr. Steal Your Girl, but Mr. Steal Your Sporting Director, as he has heart eyes for Newcastle United's Dan Ashworth. We'll discuss that on today's show, as well as some of the latest gossip on the back pages of the newspapers on today's Football Social Daily, the award-winning Premier League podcast. My name's Niall, and as always, Joel and Marley alongside me. How you doing, boys? Very good, very quiet start to Valentine's Day for myself. How about you, boys? I thought I saw you wrestling through a pile of cards there, Joel, just to get to your computer this morning. No, the only one I got one from is my mother, so that's, uh, that's how mine started. Just show us your tattoo again with the heart and the arrow going through it. <laughs> One mother, please. <laughs> Popeye tattoos, that's what you've got, is it? <laughs> Go on, boys. What, what's your plans for Valentine's Day then? Come on, let's hear it. Mr. Romantics. I'll, I'll leave the man with a pregnant wife to answer that question first. If you if you plan anything when you've got a 39 and a half week pregnant wife, I think you're, uh, you're, you're dicing with death there, to be honest. Because anything, anything could happen at any point, so who knows? It would be a great story to tell, though, your future son. What? You do realise, son, that you were born on the floor of a Greg's. <laughs> that would be a claim to fame, that, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Greg's are... Greg, did I, did I, I can't remember whether I said this yesterday on the podcast or not, but Greg's are doing a Valentine's Day box, and I've been trying to get one today. Uh, <laughs> no way, are they? Yeah, yeah, they're doing a Valentine's... It's called a, a tray bake or bake tray or something. It's just like... Two sausage rolls, two steak bakes, and two somewhere else in in a in a Valentine's box. It looks sick, um, but you can only get it in the centre of Manchester, so it doesn't Uber eats to my house. It doesn't come this far out. So that to me sounds like a Valentine's Day gift for yourself and not for your missus. You don't know my missus, mate. <laughs> you met your match then, clearly. It's, it's literally a fifty-fifty. Like oh, I love that split thing. We know each other very well, and it's the key to our hearts is through pastry. I think. All right then, boys, as it is St. Valentine's Day, if there was one thing that you could be gifted that you would love in the world of football, what would it be? I'm a bit of a sucker for memorabilia, to be honest. I've always loved, for example, like match-worn shirts, but in a specific type game. And I would love to have had either R9 shirt in the Brazil winning the 2002 World Cup or his boots in the actual game. The silver ones? Yeah. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Or maybe a patch of his hair from when he had that hair. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. Yeah, something... something... So this is the creepiest podcast starting ever. No, I want to say... Happy Valentine's Correct. Day from R9. I love you so much. You can have my boots, my shirt, oh, and my hair as well. <laughs> Go for the full set. Why the hell not? I, what I will say, though, is I think that... I can't remember if it's the 2002 or 1998 Brazil kit. But the yellow one with the green trim, I can't remember whether it's 98 or that's, 02. That's every my... Brazil kit ever, isn't it? I know, but one <laughs> of them just looks so clean. I think it's 98. I think that could be my favourite international football kit ever. Well, what about you boys? What would you like to arrive? Obviously now, I don't know if you want Promotion, to Joel. That's what I want. <laughs> just to get out of that League One. Simple as that. Yeah. To get out of League One. We won again last night. We beat Cambridge 3-1 at Fratton Park. Top of the league. It's happening. I don't know, Marley, you see. So in the Pompey group chat with a few of my mates, they're like kind of teasing me. They're like, are you starting to believe now? Because I've seen us bottle it many a time in that division. I think nine wins will do it for us. I think we've got about 14 games left. So we can only afford to not win five of those. 
we've got some teams at the bottom of the league coming up as we had last night against Cambridge. We've got Charlton, we've got Reading. So games that we would be expected to win. We've also got some big ones. We've still got to play Bolton who have got games in hand on us. And if they win those games in hand would go above us. We've still got to play them away. We've still got to play Peterborough United away who are up there in the mix. We've still got to play Blackpool who are a playoff chasing side. So there are still some let's, big games to go. Let's go as a three to Bolton against Portsmouth. That could decide the title. And we will uh, we'll, we'll be Portsmouth fans for the day. Like you see, went to Burton Albion or whatever. Bolton's a lot closer. Well, I don't know if you saw last night, Burton Albion's game got cooled off. The pitch was an absolute mud bath underwater. So quite a few... Fans were travelling up and down the country last night to follow their respective EFL clubs. Feel sorry for the Grimsby fans that went all the way down to Colchester for the game to be called off an hour before kickoff. Feel sorry for the Carlisle fans that went all the way down to Burton for the game to be called off an hour before kickoff. So maybe, aside from Pompey promotion, the one thing I want this Valentine's Day is a little bit more consideration for the fans. Looking at that Burton pitch last night, I don't know if you've seen it, but honestly, it's dreadful. You wouldn't even play a game of rugby on it. Surely someone with any common sense, could have looked at that pitch yesterday and gone, look at the forecast, lads. It's going to rain a lot. I don't think this game's going to be playable. And save the Carlisle fans a wasted journey in what's a tough financial climate. That's my just head looking in. at a video of the pitch. That's a disgrace. Have you seen it? <laughs> it's shocking. I mean, that, was, that wouldn't have been playable two no, days ago. No, not at all. No so chance. why didn't they just call it off yeah. early? I don't get it. Just, it, it just reminds me of when uh, Antonio Conte went with Spurs to Burnley. And it got called off as they were going up to the stadium. I remember they arrived. And that's a Premier League stadium. And they were thinking, you know what? Even though there's five feet of snow, let's still play on it anyway and just have a go. As soon as they went out on the pitch, they were straight back home again. I think it happens all throughout the pyramid, doesn't it? They try and they try and they try. But in the end, if the ball doesn't bounce, that's it. Yeah, felt really sorry for some of the supporters travelling yesterday that never even managed to make it to the stadium before having to turn around somewhere and head back up the other way. What about you, Marley? Apart from the Greg's box? Either Newcastle winning something in my lifetime, something proper, either League Cup, FA Cup or Premier League, Champions League, whatever, or for us to get Alan Shearer on this podcast. That would be the two things I would love the most. Um, Don't know which one's more likely, to be honest. (laughs) Uh, but yeah any of them I'll take them we should strive to make one of those things happen because the other one is completely out of our control we might have some semblance of opportunity to get Shearer on the pod I think I would actually rather Newcastle win something because I'm imagining that Shearer will command about 10 grand fee for us to pay him to come on and I don't know about you boys but Jesus Christ he's not coming out of my pocket if he had actually (laughs) put some money on Namibia to win the uh, AFCON maybe he might have used that money to pay for Shearer's appearance fee (laughs) would have paid for it (laughs) Japan let me down for that bloody Asia Cup and stuff here with him We'll talk about Newcastle United and Dan Ashworth after the news that Manchester United, amidst the Jim Ratcliffe investment in the club, are interested in bringing him to Old Trafford. We'll tie it all up next on Football Social Daily. This is Football Social Daily, the award-winning Premier League podcast, and it was rubber-stamped yesterday. The deal to confirm that Sir Jim Ratcliffe and his Ineos group have secured a 25% stake of Manchester United. They'll be putting investment into the football side of things. And Joel, this is something that we knew would happen, but it does take a lot of time to kind of get all of the formalities and paperwork sorted. Now that that move is official... 
I guess it's cause for optimism, which you already had, about what could potentially be a new dawn for Manchester United. Yeah, it's been over a year in the making this. If you remember, it was it's November 2022 when the Glazers initially announced, I remember when Bloomberg came out with it, that the Glazers actually want to put the club on the market. In the end, looking back, this was probably the next best thing that could have happened, which is just prizing away a little bit more power from uh, a group of guys who just don't know how to run a football club. So that's first and foremost a great step in the right direction. Also, just looking at the Premier League's actual media statement, press release when they actually ratified the deal is the first deal that's been ratified under the Premier League's owners and directors test which is an independent panel just a shame that it didn't come in about 25 years ago when the ship had already sailed and all these clubs were already in the door so now only now are we seeing this kind of independent not a regulation but independent overview of these actual deals happening but in terms of just the football side to focus on it's just Looking at the details, obviously I'm really annoyed at the fact that, you know, the deal's worth up to £1 billion and yet that £1 billion will not be seen by the club ever again. I mean, if I get it, it's the businessman and of course I don't think they've ever been in Manchester United to try and uh, invest in the club, which is evident from every single balance sheet you can ever look at at Man United. But it's just a shame that we don't have owners who thought, you know what, considering we're taking in £1 billion, how about we put in a bit more and try and help the club even further? It's all coming from Jim Ratcliffe where he's put a £300 million investment into the stadium as a commitment, more than the Glazers have ever done in the last 16 years, which shows massive amounts of what they've actually done. Uh, but I think it's just a great step in the right direction. We've seen Barada come from Manchester City, obviously Ashworth, which we'll talk about, is potentially being touted. So these are steps in the right direction now, which I'm happy with because over the last 16 years, there's not been any wise football decisions. What I find really interesting, Marley, and I don't know if you agree when it comes to this 25% takeover, in inverted commas, of Manchester United, is the fact that Ineos and Ratcliffe will be investing in the football side of the club. Where does that start and end? Because we've spoken about executives, like Joel just mentioned, we'll come on to Ashworth shortly. We've spoken about transfers and where Manchester United have fallen down there in recent years, but Joel also highlighted that Ratcliffe's put £300 million of potential investment into the stadium. Does that count as falling under Ratcliffe's umbrella or does that buck stop with the Glazers? What does it mean when it comes to the media commitments? Does that count as football operations? I guess if I was a Manchester United supporter, I'd kind of be uncertain where the boundaries are between what responsibility falls to Ratcliffe and what responsibility falls to the Glazers. Yeah, I think there's, um, looking at it from the outside, I think there's definitely an immediate threat of uh, job job creep. You know, when you, you know, you sign up for one thing and you end up doing way more. Like you sign up to, you know, in any any job, any job at all. Um, it's one of them, like he's, he's essentially got 25% of the, of the job, um, of, of the club and he's doing, you know, 100% of the work, basically, because they know the Glazers aren't going to do anything. So the stadium needs fixing, and it's obvious what, need do, what needs doing at Man United. The The commercial side of it is fine. It looks after itself, and there's there's different people in place to do that that are qualified to do that. That's why Man United have got different partners coming out of every orifice. You know, they've got pillow partners, hair straightener partners, you know, everything, tire tire partners, training sponsors, Back of shirt sponsors, sleeve sponsors, they've got everything that's sort of financially set up. Um, but no one looking after the football side of it. So 
It's interesting that 25% of the club... Well, it's not even been... that. It's 25% of the Glazer shares of the club. And the mad thing about this deal is it's worth around about a billion US dollars. And yet Manchester United was sold to the Glazers in 2005 for about £780 million. So Ratcliffe has bought 25% of the 69% that the Glazers paid 750 odd million for 20 years ago. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, partly, partly inflation, but partly, you know, just that's just the way it is, isn't it? But you know, it's interesting that 25% of their stake is seen as the, that's the sport inside of it. Like Jim's going to do, like Jim's going to do all the sport inside of it. And it's 25% of 69% of whatever it is. So what's that like? You're talking 18% of the, of the entire club at some point. Like, I don't know what Ratcliffe owns percentage wise, but it must be around 18%. And that is that is seen as that's the sport inside of Man United. So what is the other, you know, 70 odd percent, like 70, 82 percent or whatever it is. So that is it's interesting that that's how Man United is seen. And it's like, oh, well, Jim's going to do all that work. But that is the main bread and butter of Man United. It should be the football leading the commercial rather than the commercial leading the football. So it's kind of interesting that, that that's the balance they see it um, because Man United is that bigger club. It's not, it's not just a football club. It's a brand, isn't it? It's a worldwide brand. Um, but tell that to the fans who go every week and see dire football and terrible signings and money splashed on, you know, players that just aren't good enough, like 80 million on pretty much everyone in the squad. 80 million on Sancho is not there. 80 million on Anthony who can't get on, can't get on the pitch now. 80 million on Maguire, who's been hounded. Uh, 60 million on Varane. 60 million on Casemiro. 60 million on uh, Lissandro Martinez. There's, there's loads of 50 on Onana. You know, losing De Gea on a free. Like, there's there's loads of footballing decisions that should be leading the club over the last, you know, 10, 12, whatever years now. Um, and in that meantime, I think the balance of the club has obviously led to them getting completely overshadowed by the noisy neighbours, as it were, who were getting things right on off the pitch and then leading leading into on the pitch. They had a they had a strategy to put Pep Guardiola in charge of that club for about five years before he actually arrived. Because he that was the plan. And Man United haven't had that over the last years. So that's what Jim Ratcliffe has got to do. And you know, looking at the news of his first few weeks, he's come in and he's went, right, we need a we need a sporting director or a director of football, whatever you want to term it. Um, and the best in class is is Dan Ashworth over the past five years. So we'll get him. Um, and he's just started in Newcastle. But if the money's right and the project's right, you know, you, you're always going to be tempted. We'll come on to Dan Ashworth in a second. I do think there is a natural bleed between what Ineos are responsible for and what the Glazers are responsible for. Somewhat of a grey area. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that, Joel, and whether if Ratcliffe's involvement in the club is going to take centre stage, which, as Marley says, it should do. The football side of things should always come first, I think. Are the supporters going to be as concerned with the involvement of the current ownership if Sir Jim Ratcliffe has things his way? Because as much as it seems like this is a takeover, the Glazers are still very much in the frame as the club's owners. They have the majority share 
of Manchester United. So they will still be there. Yet Ratcliffe, if he comes in, waves the magic wand, changes things, invests in the stadium, brings a new sporting director, things start to change on the pitch. Will the tone towards the Glazer family change at all? Because it's been very hostile over the years. Or do you think that that is bad blood that can never be cured? It's a little bit of a confusing situation because like just hopping on from what Marley said, it's almost like for Ratcliffe and his team, this was the only way to get in the door. Obviously, they wanted the full 69%, which would have meant they had a commanding stake and takes full responsibility. But it's almost like they're taking control of arguably the most important part of a football club because commercially, Man United, honestly, is the most unicorn football club in the world in the fact that it will sell regardless in terms of the commercial power of it. With the way in which he's valued the club, his 25% was more than what this, I don't know if the Qatari takeover was even real, but it values it higher than what they actually wanted for 100%. So it worked out for the Glazers perfectly. The issue I have with it is that in the SEC filing, which is what happens when a deal's been agreed and the, all the terms are laid out, Jim Ratcliffe has almost first rights to being able to take over the, the vast majority of the rest of the shares should the Glazers wish to sell outright in the next two years. But then if they don't, what happens after that then? Is Ratcliffe pretty much just going to be the face of the football club the Glazers just hang around in the background like a silent owner who basically just allows them to do what they need to because the ruling actually states now that Ratcliffe and Ineos they have full control over the sport inside to the extent where they've even been allowed to choose a CEO which demonstrates to me that the Glazers are happy to go back to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers put their full focus on that and then when it comes to the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, they'll look at the balance sheet and say, yep, yeah, the club's going well, the value's increasing, see you next year. That's it. They don't want anything to do with the club But now. would the fans be happy with that approach? What can we do? We want it 100% done. The Glazers have got the club in such a vice grip. I mean, if you look at the details of how they have Class A, Class B shares, Class A shares have more power than Class B. They had to buy out these shares to then gain an access to the board seats. And it is such a complex situation that, like you've just said, the only way for any organisation or any individual to buy out the Glazers outright, 100%, including the individual shareholders on the market, was to give them an offer so astronomical like 10 billion. Which could only be probably afforded by the likes of a state. A state, yeah, exactly. So it, this was the only alternative. And you know what? Looking at it now retrospectively, if we have a local businessman like Jim Ratcliffe, who he's 71 now, it feels to me like it's a bit of a passion project where obviously, of course, there's commercial aspects. He's, he's going to want to make a return, but we all know there's not a lot of profit in football, especially when you're buying 25%. And it just feels to me like it's a win-win for the Glazers because if Ratcliffe manages to ratify all of this and we start improving sporting-wise, the value of the club goes up, which means the value share in the club goes up, which means they win regardless. And they've just got a one billion injection into all of their siblings. So in the end, the Glazers have literally played it to an absolute fiddle. And business-wise, you have to take the half to them because congratulations, you've done absolutely nothing and you've won financially. Played it incredibly well. But in terms of the sporting aspect, it's so annoying to look back and think if we had an independent regulator or an independent review panel like what happened for Jim Ratcliffe, they would never have been allowed in the door. That kind of leverage takeover is now illegal in, in football. 
So it just angers me that this is even the situation because the vice grip that the Glazers have this club in is insane. For for a club to be on the stock exchange is ridiculous in my opinion. Anyway, enough about the financial and the business side of this. You've mentioned the term sporting several times and sporting director is a position that Manchester United are looking to fill. We've heard in the news today that they are willing to make an official approach to Newcastle United for their sporting chief, Dan Ashworth. We'll go through it next on FSD. Final part of today's Football Social Daily. The big talking point on the back pages of the newspapers is a potential Manchester United approach for Newcastle's sporting director, Dan Ashworth. My name's Niall. I've got Newcastle fan Marley Anderson and Manchester United fan Joel Tudor alongside me. So the perfect people to discuss this potential piece of off-the-pitch transfer news in the Premier League. Now, Ashworth is someone who's been around the game for a long time now, 52 years old, has worked within the FA, had an executive position at West Brom and more recently at Brighton before taking up the reins as Newcastle United sporting director after the Saudi Arabian takeover. So I'll come to you first, Marley. Are you concerned that Newcastle could lose their sporting director so soon after appointing him? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, looks like it's got legs for some reason. Um, I don't think, you know, you should be open to leaving a job you've only just started. Um, but one thing that has happened you know, relatively quickly at Newcastle is we've we've found out how strict the um, the FFP rulings are, uh, and the PSR, you know, and the ten point deduction for Everton threatening sort of the rest of the league, like you know, don't cock up or we'll take ten points off you type of thing. Um, I think the board and everyone involved has realised how how stringent you have to be, and how careful you have to be, and that has maybe put a little bit of the brakes on the spending and the the targets that Newcastle can go and acquire. Um at Man United the 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 wiggle room you've got in the transfer market is is way bigger because they bring in so much more money off the pitch that they can go and afford to to waste eighty million a season on on somebody who isn't good enough, as they've shown over the last seven or eight years. You know, they they've had so many failings in the transfer window and they're nowhere near a profit and loss um, uh, breach type thing, a PSR breach. So um, you can understand why Man United want uh, Dan Ashworth. He's been the best in in the country. He's got a lot of uh, headlines for uh, and a lot of credit for what he's done at Brighton. Turned them into, as we said on yesterday's pod, you know, relegation fighters to to European challenges. Um, involved in bringing in Graham Potter. Uh, bringing in De Zerbi, uh bringing in all the players as well, like you know Caicedo, uh, Alexis McAllister, and and countless others others that they've sold on. So he's kind of, as I said before, he's the best in class, really. So it makes sense that Man United want him. Um, if you told me five six years ago that Newcastle were that Man United wanted somebody who was on Newcastle's board, I would have laughed in in your face because we were a mess. Um, but now you know we're doing something well. Um, but the counter, the counterpart of that is that other clubs see see that and they go, well, if he's working with restrictions here, could he be tempted by working without as as bigger restriction at Man United, for example, and flexing some of that cash that 
that all these sponsors bring in and, and the balance sheets are a, a little bit more um, healthy, even if the, the short term of the club is is in a bit of a um, a bit of a mess type of thing. I do think that the position of sporting director has garnered a lot more focus amongst general football fans, not just at Premier League level, but right through the pyramid, Joel. This is a position in which a few years ago, you might get the occasional camera angle glancing at the sporting director in the director's box at a stadium in the executive seats. Now, fans of all clubs know who their sporting director is, what their ambition is, and how important they are to clubs. I do think that that component of a successful club has become more and more prevalent in the last few years, don't you? Yeah, 100%. They're almost the face of transfers now, aren't they? Because they're the ones who are pretty much guiding the strategy. They're telling the coaches, these are the players I have available. Do you want Your favourite man to mention, Marcel Brands oh, from God. Everton. And, hey, I'm sure Everton fans love to mention him as well. What an absolute <laughs> joke of a sporting director. Christ, absolutely squandered money away. Um, I mean, let's not beat around the bush here. I know Marley's trying to make a narrative that it's because Newcastle are doing things well and that that kind of thing. But this would be the biggest job of his career, point blank. If you've got the task of bringing Man United back up the table to be the best in the world again, you have to take it. There's just no two ways around it. I understand that, you know, Newcastle, because they've got such a huge injection of funds, which brings good quality business people, good quality brains to the club, prior to Mike Ashley, which I don't really know if there's a brain selling between any of them on the board at that point. Um, of course, you're going to be able to attract the best in class anywhere you go because they have the money to do it. It's just a shame that United, Manchester United, have taken so long to realise that themselves, that they have the leverage to bring these types of individuals to the club, but they just not wanted to for whatever reason. Uh, I was actually looking at the Coach's Voice, which is a, a website which basically interviews coaches and asked about their analysis of the jobs that they've done. And I was reading an interesting one that Dan Ashworth did while he was the England technical director when he got appointed in 2012. And it was actually really interesting because if you think pre-2012, England had no DNA. There was just nothing, was there? I mean, didn't even qualify for the tournament with the McLaren in 2008, 2010 disaster, 2012 disaster, 2014 again disaster, but he'd only been in the job two years. 20, and 2016 but... wasn't too good if you if you want to carry on that narrative. Four years into the job, Dan, it we you didn't do well in 2016, did you? I still haven't seen the highlights to the defeat to Iceland because I was in Ibiza at the time, thinking, oh, it'd be fine, England to beat Iceland," and then came out of the club at whatever time, at six a.m. or something, and and someone was like oh, have you seen the England score? I was like, no, well, what, how do, are we through? And it's like, no, we lost to Iceland. And I've still never seen, I know Rooney scored the England goal. That's all I know. But I've never seen the highlights of that 2016 Euros defeat ever. Don't watch it. It'll be a waste of your time. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, he's obviously in the background. It takes time to work on things. I remember when uh, Greg Dyke, who had the vision, I believe it was in like 2018, where we want to win the World Cup by 2022 in Qatar. At that point, that was such a pipe dream because England were in the absolute gutter. And I'm not trying to paint out this picture of Ashraf to be this England saviour who's painted everything, you know, like a mosaic behind the scenes. But when you read what he's actually talking about, where he said we wanted to make England believe they could win, creating England DNA, it was after the St. George's Park had been built, you know, actually creating a kind of model that England can go off, clearly has the vision to do that. And that's the reason why he's been so successful in his career so far. And I think that's key as well, because the other main pillar of his career was Brighton. When we talk about all of these Brighton signings, 
Caicedo they've moved on for 100 million, Bissouma they've moved on for big money. There's many others that I can't think of off the top of my head that we've discussed on this podcast over the last few years. Most of those are down to Dan Ashworth. And so we're talking about two facets of his career here, aren't we, Marley? We're talking about the philosophy and instilling a, a culture on one half with the FA and the work he's done there and look at the youth teams that England have got and how well they're coached and how well they've done and some of the managers from those youth teams that have gone on to Premier League jobs or Football League jobs. Some of them we've spoken about on this podcast too. And then you've got the other side, which is, as I mentioned, like he did at Brighton, making shrewd, astute signings that help set the club up for years to come. So there's two elements to this man and it's very impressive, his CV. You can understand why Manchester United would be interested. Yeah, you can. Um, the one thing I would say though is this this job is unlike no other he's, he's had before. Um, Brighton, Brighton were a, a complete blank sheet of A4 paper and they were like, look, Dan, we need a strategy. We need to think outside the box and get Brighton from from essentially just waiting to go to go down under Chris Hutton and you know um, scrapping for their lives every year to you know breaking the mold and getting out of that type of thing and getting up the up the league at Newcastle it's kind of the it's it's almost a similar job in terms of you have to you have to break through what the club has previously done. Whereas at Man United, it's getting them back to where they belong, which is absolutely not, you know, you've got no God-given right to be near the top of the league just because you once were. Um, but with with Man United, I feel like there, there might be a lot more red tape around what you're meant to do. You can't have the same strategy as you had at Newcastle or Brighton because if you're signing unknown players for Man United, the club will not, the, 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 no one's used to that in Man United. So if they're signing a guy who could be the next big thing and he has a few bad games, the pressure at Man United will completely kill him. Um, if you sign like Cucurella, for example, when he went to um, when he went to Brighton, there's no pressure on him. It's only Brighton. You can go from Getafe to Brighton and, and do well because you've got no expectation on you. When you go to Chelsea, you get found out because you're, you're at a massive club and you can't deal with the pressure. And he's being exposed for what a, a terrible player he is. So you can't have that type of signing at Man United. You've got to have marquee signings that will come into the first team straight away and bed in and make the team better and all for the for a decent price. Because Man United, as we all know, they go into the transfer market and every selling club just has their pants down and has 20, 30 million more than the player's worth on a regular basis. Sydney with Anthony. 80 million for Anthony, for example, like he's never been an 80 million pound player. No one who's ever came out of the, uh, the Eredivisie has been an 80 million pound player. Um, I think that's the reason why it's having to change though, isn't it? You're looking back at these mistakes and thinking, why was there not a qualified person to say no? You know, rather than kind of just running with the, we need to do whatever the manager wants. It has to happen. Mm. That's probably come off the back of last summer. It's probably reached the precipice where it's thinking we cannot keep squandering funds like this. It doesn't work that way. You can't just throw cash at the problem. Yeah, but but is Ashworth going to be able to get a lower demand for a player? For example, could he have signed? He could he have gone to Ajax last year and signed Anthony for fifty million? Because Ajax are always going to want the money. It, and it, so is every have, selling club in the The issue future. with that was that Ajax were demanding almost half the fee earlier in the summer. So it's more about preparation, proactivity. 
Because the reason why it was 85 million is because United came crawling back at the end of the summer saying, we'll pay whatever you want. Kind yeah, of thing. you're right. It's, it's about being stubborn yeah, enough yeah. to walk away. And that's the position that Manchester United have not been able to take in recent times because quite simply, everyone in world football knows how much they've struggled and how weak they've been at times, Joel. So Manchester United hold absolutely none of the cards at all. If Ajax know that Eric Ten Hag is desperate for Anthony, they're going to charge a premium. And the fact that Manchester United was suckered into paying 60 million for Casemiro and 60 million for Varane, who I think in the next three years won't be Manchester United players, I think you can guarantee that. That's the sort of situation that Dan Ashworth is there to make sure United don't get themselves into. Exactly that. There's a lot of other big clubs out there who have more money and more financial power than United, namely City. And they never get their pants pulled down in the transfer window. Why? Because if they get quoted a price, they're not happy with the walk away. And they have another five <laughs> alternatives. Uh, but that's because they've built up a base already, haven't they, of quality players. So they can afford to, to walk away, no pun intended, and find a different option. Whereas Manchester United have backed themselves into a corner with such poor decisions on the football side when it comes to recruitment of players. Sometimes they have no choice but to actually splash the money. And that came under Ed Woodward where he had this egomaniac... I want to build a Galactico team and we'll buy whoever we can with the biggest name, with the biggest wages. And that's filtered through the world of football, where if you approach, if Man United approach any of these clubs, they know how desperate they get and they get fixated on that player and they can't leave it alone. Whereas any other big club, whether it's Real Madrid, whether it's Bayern Munich, whether it's you know Liverpool, any of these clubs, they have cash to spend, but they're not reckless with it. They have a plan. And if they don't get the price right for whatever player, they have another two, three, four backups who fit that mould to a T. United don't have it. And that's the reason why it's almost essential now, isn't it? I think. Well, Dan Ashworth is set to be subject of an approach from Manchester United, the Newcastle United Sporting Director, may well be interested in taking the job. He might well turn around and say, no, Newcastle is the place for me, whatever happens. I'm sure we'll talk about it again at some point down the line here on Football Social Daily, the award-winning Premier League podcast. Thanks for listening in today. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss another episode. And you can also join us on the Telegram group by clicking the link in the description. All right, enjoy your Valentine's Day evenings, boys, whatever you're up to. And we'll catch you all tomorrow on Football Social Daily. Speak to you then. Football Social Daily is a voice work sport production for the Sports Social Podcast Network.